bless you that's here and those that's watching and listening. Hallelujah, that God is just moving and blessing. Amen. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Because you can go home well. The healer's in the house, amen. The great physician's in the house, amen. Hallelujah. The doctor's in the house. The banker's in the house. Jesus is in the house, amen. And he's here to meet your need and whatever you need today, amen. Look at somebody and say, you don't have to leave. You don't have to leave like you came in Jesus' name. Oh, you don't have to leave, amen. God just moving and blessing and you receive it. Say, I receive. Amen. Praise the Lord. Well, we have a, a great man of God today uh, that's going to share, and he'll, he'll introduce his, uh, his family and some of other fam- his rest of his family being into the service, but uh, uh, it's an honor to have him. He's been, he was our neighbor for several years, and uh, we're just glad to have him as our neighbor, and uh, we visited him. Brother Vic visited our neighbor. He couldn't visit us, but we could visit him. Amen. And uh, just, just great to, great to have, have him but um, here today, and he's going to come, and then we have some special things at the end of the service. Uh, but would you make welcome this morning, uh, minister, man of God, uh, Brother Blake Russell this morning. Amen. <laughs> good to go on that speaker? Amen. Well, I've already been crying, so it's a good day. I'll probably, uh, I'll probably cry some more. My wife has learned to give me tissues, but um, I just love Jesus. I, I really do. I, it don't matter if I'm in this pulpit or watching my child swim or cutting the grass I'm, my heart is continually before him in Psalm 16 8 King David said I've set the Lord continually before me he's forever at my right hand I shall not be moved and then sometimes I feel like Paul the only problem I got is my flesh won't let me get closer to him where Paul said who will deliver me from this bodily tent and so uh, let's give Jesus just one more hand because he's worthy <laughs> He's worthy. I'm going to pray. I know we've done a lot of praying and a lot of singing. I'm going to pray one more time, and then I'm going to share my testimony and introduce my wife, and, uh, and we'll go from there. But let's pray. Father, in Jesus' name, Lord, I just love you. And Lord, I don't want any of your glory. You can have it, Lord. It's yours. The lamb that was slain shall receive the reward for his suffering. God, I bless you. I thank you, Lord, that the earth will be filled with the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. And Lord, it's coming. We're closer to the time of our salvation than when we first believed. It's high time. So, Lord, I thank you for refreshing this morning. God, I thank you. I just pray, Lord, that when they leave this service, God, when I leave this service, Lord, that simply somebody will be closer to you. That's my only prayer, God, is that you'll draw us closer to you today, God. And we thank you, Lord, and we bless you. In Jesus' name, amen. So I was, uh, I was your neighbor for a couple years. Um, I was over at Easterling Correctional Facility. Um, I got there in April of 2012, and I left there in December of 2013. And I'm going to get into that, but that was at the latter part of a second, a second prison sentence that I had done. Uh, is, is Pastor Coker in here? He's out somewhere. 
gospel. He was, a, he was one of the pastors that would always come in and preach. And I would sit there with my notebook and just hang on every word. So I wanted to tell y'all that I am, if you sow into the prison ministry by praying, by giving financially, by giving up your time, I am fruit of that ministry. I wasn't looking for God. Matter of fact, I hated God. I hated an idea that I had about God. That's all I had. I didn't hate him. I hated an idea of him because you can't know him and hate him. And uh, I wasn't looking for him, but he was looking for me. And the Bible says that no one comes to the Father unless he draws him. And I had my drawing encounter and my drawing experience at Easterland in 2012, and it radically changed my life. My body's covered with, um, with gang tattoos and dope tattoos and, and all that, but uh, he uses me. And so here I stand today under that grace, and uh, it happened right down the road in a little town called Clio, Alabama. <laughs> So this is, this is home for me. We've, uh, I drove my wife by the prison yesterday. I've never been more excited to show somebody a prison. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I still go in there the second Thursday. I'll, I'll be there next Thursday. Uh, I go into the same chapel that I got saved and then I preach. And I always call out my AIS number to the inmates. I always say, Blake Russell, 24-1909. And they get a good laugh out of that. But they feel like there's one of them standing before them. So God does great things. But we travel, you know, we, uh, we do missionary work in Uganda, Sierra Leone, Africa. Uh, we'll probably be in Israel in February. We'll be up in Maine in September. But uh, Clio, Alabama is not my birthplace in the natural, but it's my birthplace in the spirit. So this, this is home for me. Uh, I love these country roads and those long pastures and the chicken plants and the logging trucks. And it's just God speaks to me when I get in this area. So... Um, so I'm thankful to be here. We're originally from Phoenix City in Columbus, Phoenix City, Alabama, Columbus, Georgia. I got my wife, Krista, with me. Honey, if you'll stand up and just wave. I, I married up tremendously, you guys. I think she's more attracted to the anointing than anything. It's not me. So if the Lord ever departed, I'd probably lose her. So. But uh, she, uh, we were high school sweethearts, and then I lost her along with everything else that I'll get into uh, back in 2004, 2005, we dated for four years, and then 13 years went by, we didn't see each other, and uh, I ran into her on the sidewalk in Atlanta. Literally, I got out of a car, and she's standing on the sidewalk on her phone. Hadn't seen her in 13 years, and uh, here we are, uh, reconciled back together. We, got, we have two small children, Micah, he's three and a half, and, uh, and seven, our daughter, like the number, seven, she's five, and uh, they're back there <laughs> giving somebody a fit. But I, uh, I had a normal upbringing, just like most of you. I wasn't raised in a home where drugs or gangs or alcohol or prison was even talked about. Uh, my parents, the one thing that did happen in my childhood early that kind of severed some things in my life was I went through a divorce. I think studies show that 70% of all American families go through a divorce. That's 7 out of 10 couples that get married. They're going to, you know, studies show that they get divorced. It's not as much in the church, but in the, in the world on a grand scale, that's just what happens. My mom and dad got divorced when I was four years old. If you think back, your earliest childhood memory, if you think back as far as your memory will let you go, everybody can go back to one certain memory. It might be baseball or cheerleading or cooking with your grandma or something. My earliest childhood memory is, um, is my father holding me when I was four years old and my mom is peeling out of the driveway. She had old blue Pontiac, bigger than the sanctuary. <laughs> And uh, there was gravel spitting all out. And I remember my dad just holding me 
But that's the earliest memory when I think back. And, and so I went through that at four years old. My mom married multiple, you know, she had multiple relationships. So from the time I was four up to the time I was 12 years old, I lived with my mother. And saw multiple, I love my mom. She's actually one of the reasons I'm saved. She prayed me into the kingdom. She got saved five years prior to me, had a powerful encounter in the Assemblies of God Church in Phoenix City, First Assembly. Uh, powerful encounter with the Lord, and she got saved, but she prayed me in. So nothing in my testimony that speaks of her past is still valid, you know. But, uh, I, you know, multiple men coming through the house, and uh, my father remarried to a woman that's my stepmother now. She's been my stepmother for 30-plus years. But just always a fractured environment. I watched my mom talk about them when I was with her. I'd go spend time with my dad, and I'd watch them talk about my mom. So I was, you know, I was four to 12 years old in the middle of this vortex of just, you know, uh, oppressive negative words that, you know, the power of life lies in the tongue. And so that stuff was just over me. And so I always remember feeling as a child, like anytime I was in the same room as my mother and my father and their, their boyfriend or their wife, I was, there was always this tension because anything could erupt at any time. I played baseball in Little League and I remember they would have fights in the stands and I'd be on the field you know, at shortstop or, or whatever, and I could hear adults screaming, and lo and behold, it was always my mother and my stepmother, right? And so I remember I, I, I look back now, and I had this mindset of just, you know, gosh, I just want them to stop, just stop all that, you know? And, uh, and so, but it was always just this tension. So at 12 years old, I asked my mom if I could go live with my dad, simply because the neighborhood that he had moved into had more kids my age, that's all it was. It wasn't that I wanted to get away from mom. It's just I wanted to go play with my friends. And so she reluctantly let me go. And I moved over into Phoenix City, Alabama, with my dad when I was 12 years old. And I loved it. I was back around my dad, you know, the fishing trips, the playing catch in the front yard. You know, a son wants to be with his, there's times where he wants to be with his mom, but he likes that, that dad time. And I love my father, and I still love him. Um, so at 12 years old, my mom let me go. She didn't want to let me go, but she let me go. And that started a seven-year-long time frame of where I didn't see my mother. Because once I got into my dad's house, uh, they would just make up lies about my mom. You know, she was bar hopping or whoring or doing whatever she was doing. Uh, so when she would come around and knock on the door, uh, it was every other weekend to get me. They would always have some excuse. We were out of town or we just happened to be at the beach that weekend. Or, so I grew up like that. And for seven years, I didn't see my mom. And she would come around and drop presents off on the front porch, and they'd get them. I learned this years later. They would get them and move them. You know, I didn't see them. So it looked like to me that my mom was exiting out of my life, right, that she was just too caught up in her lifestyle or whatever it was. And at 12 and 13 years old, you just, you're, you're hitting that level of maturity where you really, it's hard to figure things out. And so there's, there's, there's mindsets that are being implanted in a young man at that time. Well, at 13 years old, I also was the, the year that I smoked, a year after being at my dad's house, I smoked my first marijuana joint. And it was only, only because I was playing basketball in a cul-de-sac where all the neighborhood kids were. There were like nine of them. And the story goes that, you know, marijuana is the gateway drug. It's been like that for 30 or 40 years, and it is. Trust me, I didn't just wake up one day and say, you know what, I'm going to put a shot of methamphetamine in my arm. No kid, no alcoholic wakes up and says, I'm going to drink a case today, you know, no, nobody wakes up and says, I'm going to do a line of cocaine today. You always start with either alcohol or marijuana. It's the, it's the things that open you up. And so I remember I smoked that first joint that day simply because all the other kids smoked the joint. And I didn't want to be that oddball out over here. I just didn't have the strength. Some of, the, some of you guys that are younger, y'all might have the strength to just kind of run inside. But I was, you know, 
I just didn't. I smoked the joint. And I remember, I remember smoking that joint and going into my parents' house, going back to my room, playing video games, Nintendo 64 or Sega Genesis or whatever it was at that time. And I remember thinking, wow, I knew that I had done drugs at that point, but it was like no big deal. I came in, I spent an hour or two in my room. Dad and my stepmom didn't notice anything. I came out and I ate dinner, you know, and went back to my room just like every kid does. If they're in their room, oh, it's no big deal. They're just in their room, right? But that was the first time I got high. That was also the first time that I drank an alcoholic beverage that year. I went to a Central and Shaw football game. Uh, I was uh, going into my freshman year and I drove with a bunch of seniors. And so I got drunk for the first time. The guy who handed me my first beer is actually a pastor. He's been a pastor for for 15 years, and he always gets on the edge of his seat when I go to share my testimony if he's in the room, because he's like, is is he going to tell on me or not? But anyway, he's a pastor. He went to Bible college and all that. A good guy. They do uh, missionary work in Rwanda, uh, Africa. But 13, 12 and 13 were big years in my life. Moved in with my dad, quit seeing my mom, started getting high, started drinking. I always hung around older kids. Baseball kind of got me in the door. I was always an excellent baseball player. My freshman year, I got called up to play on the varsity. I was a pitcher. And uh, so I always naturally hung out with older kids. And so naturally, I was introduced to things that older kids are introduced to more rapidly, you know. And so I started getting high at 13, started getting drunk at uh, 13. But I, stepped, I, I kept good grades in school, and I, and I excelled on the baseball field. Well, at 16 years old, uh, I caught my first DUI. I was 16 years old. I had been 16 for two months. And I ran my, my Mazda MX-6 into the back of a friend of mine. We were all going to a party. So there was like 20 cars full of teenagers. We were all going out into the woods somewhere to go to like a bonfire or a keg party. And I ran into the back of her doing like 40 miles an hour. And I got my first DUI when I was 16. And so that kind of opened my eyes, my parents' eyes to, well, Blake might be doing a little more than just hanging out with friends. Right. But at 16, the police let my parents take me to the they arrested me, but they put the handcuffs in the front and they let they let your parents drive you to the police station. That's not really getting arrested. Look, I've been arrested over 40 times. That's not getting arrested. And so got arrested, had to do some juvenile probation court stuff, some drug classes. I mean, some alcohol classes, had to take some driving classes, but it wasn't really repercussions to that. I mean, you're 16 years old. Trust me, you're not who's 16 in here. You're grown, but you're not grown. <laughs> you know, you're grown, but you're not grown. You might, unless you were different than I was. At 16, I thought I knew a lot, but I really didn't know much. And so nothing really happened. Nothing changed my life. That's, that's a big thing in people's life. If you get a DUI, my goodness. You know, but for me, it was like, well, this, I looked around, wasn't that bad. You know, had to do a few classes. Parents dropped me off, you know. So my, my alcohol and my drugs uh, addiction was progressing. Well, by the time I was 15 and 16 years old, I started doing ecstasy and mushrooms. And so that's another grade up in drugs. I was always hanging out at the parties. I was always around the older kids, remember. I was becoming a baseball star in my hometown, right? And so I was always on the scene. You know the popular kids, the athletes, they're always where the, the good hip stuff is happening. Well, my drug uh, addiction progressed. It got into ecstasy and mushrooms. And so I'm, I'm smoking marijuana too, but I'm drinking beer and drinking liquor. Now I'm doing ecstasy and I'm taking mushrooms. Still going home, still going to class, still excelling on the baseball field. You know, no, nobody was being harmed. It was all kind of pushed under, under the door. Nobody really knew. My coaches didn't know. My parents didn't know. I'd gotten good at 
you know, just kind of being quiet and going to my room. I always said, yes, sir, no, sir. I always said, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am. I was a really good, I was becoming a really good drug addict. I got a sister who's younger than me, and I told her one time jokingly a couple years ago, I said, you're a really bad drug addict. You, 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 you cuss mom out. You talk crazy to her. You know, you hurt yourself. You try to manipulate, but you're not really good at it. Like, I was good at it. Yes, sir. No, sir. Go to your room. Yes, sir. Cut the grass. Yes, sir. Right? I did whatever I had to do to not put the spotlight on me. Stay under the radar. And I, I became good at it. Well, I was maintaining decent grades and excelling on the baseball field. I got Mr. Personality my senior year in high school. I got recruited by a couple colleges to play baseball. I ended up signing a full baseball scholarship with Central Alabama Community College up in Alexander City. Me and her started dating my senior year. You were a sophomore at another school. Um, and so life is going good for me. Signed a full-ride scholarship, dating a head cheerleader at the rival high school. Uh, she was national cheerleader of the year out of all the cheerleaders in the United States. She won a big competition up in Nashville, I believe it was, Tennessee. So she's shaking her head like, yeah, but... So my life, you, you can see that child, Mr. Personality, star baseball athlete, beautiful girlfriend. His life is going somewhere, right? And so I got called up to varsity, like I said. I started dating Krista. I graduated in 2001. I signed with the number three ranked junior college in the nation. I led the nation in saves as my, fresh, as my freshman year up there. I thought that was kind of prophetic now that I look back at it. I, was, I led the nation in saves. I was a junior college freshman Closer. Anybody follow baseball? You know what the closer is? We're the guys who come in in the ninth inning to shut the game down. If we're up one run or two runs, you call in the closer. He gets three outs and shuts it down. I'd always been a starter. I didn't really want to be a closer, but, you know, you, you do what the coaches say. Well, I was pretty good at it. I, I led the nation in saves that year. I beat out a guy from Arizona. I had 18 saves. He had 15. Uh, had Major League Scouts starting to look at me this time. I remember the Florida Marlins would come and watch me throw a they came and watched me throw a bullpen a few times, Anaheim Angels, the Braves uh, scouts. And so everything was going well. Well, later on that year, I got there. My freshman year began in fall of 2001. In 2002, when the year was over, that beginning of that summer, I drove back up to college. And my dad and my stepmom found a substantial amount of marijuana in one of my jackets in my closet in the hood part of it. Y'all remember those old starter jackets? I had a San Francisco 49er starter jacket, and I had about three ounces of marijuana in the hood. My dad, lo and behold, goes into my closet wanting to wear one of my jackets. I was about his size at this time. Pushed the jacket on and weed in the, in the hoodie. You know, so my stepmom gets on the phone with my coach. She calls up there and says, we found marijuana in Blake's room. Tells him the whole story. We want him home. We don't want him in college. He needs to come home. He's out of control, this, that, and the other. So when I get there, we have a Monday meeting with all the players and we eat in the study hall together. All the athletes, from volleyball players to baseball players to golfers, they meet, we eat this big dinner together. And Coach Ingram, Don Ingram, I remember I'm getting, I'm getting some chicken fingers or macaroni and cheese and he's on the other side of the buffet, my coach. Now I'm leading the nation in saves. I'm the, probably the, the top prospect junior college freshman in the state of Alabama. Got pro scouts watching me and he says, Blake, I wanna see you in my office tomorrow morning at eight o'clock. Well, I thought, some more scouts or another big name school. Alabama was starting to take interest, Ole Miss, Oregon, South Alabama. And so I'm thinking, okay, just a regular meeting with coach, he's gonna talk about some stuff and you know, I'll be in there 20 minutes. When I walk in there, he's got these papers laid out on his office desk and there's a paper signed by him, the assistant coach, 
the dean of students and the president of the college and their release forms. And I am being released from the college. I'm being kicked out of college. And I asked him, what was it for? He said, you've been selling marijuana to the team. We will not put up with it. I pleaded with him, even though I couldn't at the time pass a urinalysis test. I said, coach, let me, let me, let me do a drug test. You know, I figured I'd get 20 minutes to scramble up something, get somebody else's urine, do something. You know, I was trying. And uh, he said, no, it won't be necessary. You're off the team. Here's your release letters already signed by the administration. You know, good luck, son. So I get on the phone with a coach that had recruited me out of high school in my hometown of Phoenix City, Chattahoochee Valley. And I called him, Coach Adam Thomas. And I said, Coach, this is just what happened. I'm not selling weed to the team. I can pass a drug test, this, that, and the other. He said, can you, can you pass a drug test? I said, I can pass a drug test. I knew I was going to do in the next two days whatever I needed to do to get either my urine clean or get somebody else's in my hand that was clean. I said, I can pass one. He said, we'll be here at my office Thursday morning. If you pass the urinalysis test, I'll give you a scholarship right then. You sign it. Done. He was doing, he was good with it because he thought, man, this guy let the top prospect get out of this program. I'm fixing to snatch him up. Well, what happened is I called my mom also and said, can I come live with you? I'd seen my mom in that time probably four or five times over seven years. And she said, sure, you can come home, son. I've been waiting on this day for years. Didn't want to go home to my dad and my stepmom. Pretty much told them I ain't coming home. I'm running away from y'all. I'm going back to my mom's house. I'm going to college at Chattahoochee Valley. You know, you're angry with your parents and, and, and all that. Well, I moved in with my mom. She was happy to have me back, but the, the thing that she didn't realize what was coming with me, you know, essentially, I was not saved. I was not redeemed at the time, so literally hell was coming with me. I'm 19 years old at this time. I'm a drug addict. I'm a prideful, insolent man. I'm an adulterer, sexual immorality. All the things that Paul says, and Jesus said, these will not inherit the kingdom. I, I could check every list. I've done them a thousand times over. So she was happy to have me back, but I came home with all those problems. Started playing ball at Chattahoochee Valley. Everything was going good that fall. I remember I was pitching in a tournament in, in Gadsden, Alabama. And um, I threw the whole nine innings, and I, I struck out 13 batters. And in the ninth inning, I was 91-92 on my fastball. And I remember two Brave Scouts walking in the dugout. And shook my hand, and they said, uh, you know, son, this time, this time next year, uh, we're, we're possibly looking at trying to sign you to some rookie ball. We'll send you overseas, Mexico or wherever, for a year. And you got a chance to be making some real money this time next year. I was 6'4", I'm 6'4", about 210 pounds now. I was 6'4", 185, long arm. I was ideal pitcher. Have you ever seen a major league pitcher? They're tall, lanky, and long. Very rarely are they short guys. I was 91, 92, you know, they said, we, we're interested. Go to class, keep your nose clean, stay out of trouble. And they sat in the dugout with me for the remainder two or three innings of the game. Brave scouts. I walk out of the dugout at the end after shaking their hand. There's another Angels, another, they're the Anaheim, now they're the Los Angeles. Another Anaheim Angels scout that had followed me a little bit at CAC. He said, hey, we're, you're on our radar too. We're going to see what we can do to get you into our system. That was on a Sunday. Uh, Tuesday night, I was at a friend's house, and uh, Metro Narcotics agents had been watching the house, and uh, they kicked the door in, and I just happened to be there. I was on the phone with her, a little Nokia cell phone back in 03, 04. Y'all remember what? They had the long, you played the snake game. They had the T9 texting. I was on the phone with her, probably late, probably done something to make her mad, and we had just done a lot of cocaine, and we were starting to drink beer, and we were going to the, the fair was in town. And uh, Metro agents ran from all sides of the house down the street, about 20 agents. They were busting him 
and his dad on a cocaine distribution. And this, this particular friend died two years ago of a, of a heroin overdose. And I've been home since 2013, and I have about 20 to 30 personal friends that have overdosed on heroin since I've been home. And Kent Clarity was one of them. Uh, I spoke at his funeral, one of the hardest funerals I've ever had to do. And uh, so I got arrested that night with possession with intent to distribute marijuana. And I got put on three years probation when I went in front of the judge. And I think I was 19 or 20 years old at this time, probably 20. Now, I'd never been on probation other than that DUI I caught when I was 16 years old. And I didn't really have to do anything. When you get big boy probation, you have to report to the probation officer. And you have to pass the drug test every month. I hadn't been clean since I was 13. Wasn't planning on getting clean then. So I never reported. Well, I got kicked out of college too. You can't catch a felony and remain an NCAA student. Coach Thomas begged me. I remember this man begging me. He said, Blake, just come live with me. Come live with me for eight months and you're out of here. You're going to go into the rookie ball system. You're going to play intermediate, minor league, triple-A baseball, and you're out of here. Just eight months. Live with me. His, him and his wife had just gotten married. They just had a kid, and this man was begging me, come live with me. And I said, no, coach, I've been playing baseball since I was four years old. I'm done. I want a break. I'll come back next year. He said, well, you come back next year, I'll give you your scholarship back, but you have to be dismissed per NCAA rules. Well, I just want a break. To me, man, I don't want to have to go to class or practice. I want to get high all day. I want to hang out with my buddies that sell dope. We're going to, make some, we're going to sell some dope. We're going to do what we want to do. Well, I got put on three years probation. I violated. They put me in the county jail for the first time in my life for one month. I'd been a few times before on that DUI and bonded right out. But this was the first time I ever had to do time. Well, I learned real quick in the county jail that uh, I don't like to fight. But I, I don't, you know, I don't like to see you keep swinging your hands at me either. So I learned I could fight a little bit. You know, I was an athlete. I was long. All you got to do is move quicker than he does and hit him in the face before he hits you. And if he don't fall, just keep chopping the tree, you know. Well, I got in a few fights, and I learned, well, this ain't that bad. You know, you get to sit around and watch Maury Provich all day and play spades, and they bring you your food, and, you know, it ain't that bad. Well, I did a month, and I got out, and I was a little harder. You know, I've done some jail time now. Well, didn't report, violated again. They gave me two months in the county jail. Did two months. Got out, now I'm a little harder. And every time I come out of the county jail system, I am bypassing my peers that have never been in jail. They're still doing drugs, and they're selling drugs, but they, I am tapping into another networking. I'm tapping into another level of criminal intent. And so every time I come out of the county jail, I'm a little harder. I'm even looking at my friends like, y'all ain't doing enough. Y'all aren't hard enough. I met some boys in there that are, they're giving their life for this stuff. Matter of fact, they're doing life sentences for it. Got out after that second time and, and violated again. Went in front of the same judge and he said, Blake, you ain't going to do right. I'm fixing to sentence you to prison for the rest of your time. And he sentenced me. I went to Kilby for the first time and, uh, and I did 15 months in prison. I learned there. You know, prison is it's not easy for everybody. And it wasn't easy for me. A man can do a thousand years if every day is different, but every day is not different. And that's the hardest thing about prison time. It's that every day is the same. Your clothes are the same. The food's the same. The same bad breath, stank guard is in your face hollering at you. It's the same thing every day. Other than that, a man can do a thousand years. Throw away the key. I'm comfortable here. There's no responsibility. Just make every day different. Well, my athletic ability lets me cross cultural bounds in prison that a lot of people can't. Right? I can play basketball. I was the only white boy on the basketball out of 200 inmates. I was the only white boy that was allowed on the basketball court. 
I'm an athlete. I'm like a Labrador retriever. If a ball came bouncing through here right now, I'm going to be on it. I just love sports. I like talking sports. I, like, I used to like betting on games of sports. I would play basketball with African-Americans. I'd go play softball. I'd go play soccer with the Hispanics. I'm throwing horseshoes with all the old men. So everybody knows Blake. Everybody knows, they used to call me Bird. Everybody knows Bird. So when I get out of prison that first time after doing 15 months, I remember I had this mindset that if I go out here and take a man's life, I, I counted the cost. Jesus says count the cost. I sat down in my mind. I remember shortly after I got out that first time and I counted the cost. If I go back out here doing what I was doing, if I take a man's life, if it happens, if I sell drugs and they give me 100 years, that's the worst they can do to me. They had the state, the system, grandma to the, from grandma's house to the judge's house. They had pulled their trump card. That's all we can do to you. And I thought that wasn't that bad. Wasn't that bad. Now, for other men in there, it was bad. But for me, I just played sports all day. It wasn't that bad. And so I came home. I, I did OK for about a year. I got reconciled shortly to my father for about a year. I worked with him in construction. He's a superintendent for a big contracting company. He let me come to work for him. And it only lasted for about a year, though. I was bored. I was bored with it. I, I longed for the streets again. I longed for the, the drugs. And she had been broke up with me the, on that trip to the prison for the first time. She met me in the county jail parking lot. She was Miss Phoenix City at the time. And the guards used to have to bring her in to to visit me after visitation hours because she's a public official. She's Miss Phoenix City. And, you know, I remember the sergeants would be like, you've got to be the dumbest. you got this woman out here who's everything, and you just, you know, you got to be the dumbest. And so she came one day and told me our lives are going in two totally different directions. I, I just can't be with you anymore. And, and so we broke up, and she went on down the road, and uh, I, I, you know, told her bye, did my thing, and... I got out, and like I said, I did okay for about a year, but then I pushed the pedal again. Moved back out to my mom's house, and it uh, wasn't too long after that, I got, I got really addicted to cocaine. And so I left my marijuana and my ecstasy peers, and I graduated into my cocaine buddies. And that's a whole other level. And then shortly after that, I graduated from my cocaine buddies into my methamphetamine buddies. And then after that, I, I graduated from my methamphetamine buddies into my manufacturing methamphetamine buddies and my cartel buddies and that level. And uh, wasn't too long after that, I caught a, a looting the police and driving on a suspended license. I threw a whole bunch of dope out the window, sped from the officers, threw the drugs out the window. And once the drugs hit the ground and I could kind of tell he didn't see where they went, I pulled over. And he got me for eluding the police, driving on a suspended license, reckless endangerment. And I did six months in the county jail in Georgia. Got out of there for three months and uh, was on a big piece of hunting land manufacturing some methamphetamine and, and narcotics agents pull up again and I called a, uh, a trafficking methamphetamine with manufacturing in a second. Went in front of the same judge that would always sentence me and he said, he said, you know, Blake, uh, I want to give you life. And on the point system, I can give you life. The DA was recommended 99 years and uh, I was 25 at the time. This was my fourth class A felony. I had been locked up in the county jail over 40 times. I got 40-something misdemeanors running from the police in Auburn, had nine police cars behind me. And I stood in front of that judge, and I remember thinking I'm, I was just tired. I was, I, was, I was glad I was going somewhere to get some rest. I didn't want to do 15 years of rest, but, you know, I remember standing there, and he said, what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you two 15-year sentences, and I'm going to run them together. I'm going to give you one more chance. And uh, under that state law of trafficking, a man has to serve or a woman has to serve at least three years 
behind the fence before they're eligible for parole or work release. So I knew I had to do at least three years. And so I go down to Kilby, and then I got transferred over to Staten, which is in uh, Montgomery, Alabama. And my first three years there, I became a gang member, um, and I became an intravenous drug user. I, put, I started putting a needle in my arm. And, you know, I, I used to, what used to fuel me, I don't, know what, what, I don't know where you've been and what fuels you, but what used to fuel me is the hatred I had for myself of what my life used to be and what it could have been and what it was now. And that made me very angry. And it was the shame and the condemnation. And I would use that as gas, as fuel to go harder. When I fought men, I would use that as fuel. When I ran from the police through woods and through cars and jumping medians and all that, that's what fueled me. It was the anger of like, you know what? My life's over with anyway. It's over with anyway. And so I'd, got, I'd taken this mindset that I'm going to do this stuff the rest of my life. The woman that I've always loved was gone. My father was out of my life for good. I'd put my mom through hell. All my peers that I grew up with were getting mortgages and having babies. You know, and here I am just rotting away. And so I used that. I used that as, 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 as fuel for my actions. It's a very dangerous place when a person gets like that. When they get over the brink of I do not care about my life or your life. That's a very dangerous place, and I'd gotten to that place. That's, you know, I became a gang member, and we were trafficking drugs into the prison and uh, fighting. You know, I was locked up for those first three years, and I caught 24 major disciplinaries in 19 months, uh, creating safety and security health hazards, uh, insubordination, insinuating riots, fighting without weapon, you know, disobeying direct orders, contraband after contraband after cell phone after cell phone after cell phone. You know, cell phones are illegal in prison. But we would get them in by the bags. And so I was there for three years. And I remember I met a lieutenant called Lieutenant Fells. And he told me one day, Lieutenant Fells, he's about, he's about 6'5", 280. Uh, black guy with a box cut. Just military is all get out. And I remember he told me one day, he said, when we transfer you, if I'm not working, I'm still coming in. Just to see you get on the van and get out of here. Because they could never catch me with much other than the cell phones. We were scoring drugs, but they could never put their hands on the drugs and tie it to us. And so one day, April 22nd of uh, 2012, they woke me up at 4 o'clock in the morning. I'd been at Staten for over three years. I was only supposed to do three years and go home. But, you know, I've always excelled at whatever I've done. So <laughs> I ended up doing five years on it versus three years. They were trying to get me to do 11 years on it, but I started getting my good time back. So they transferred me April 22nd. I remember Lieutenant Fells, he came in, came walking down the hallway with a polo shirt on and some jeans. And he came to see me leave the day he was off. And I asked him, Lieutenant, where am I going? And he said, I can't tell you that. It's a breach of security, but you'll know when you get on the highway. So I got on the highway, and they started heading towards Bullock County and Barber County. And I thought, well, I'm going to Ventress or Bullock. That's okay. Nobody ever thinks about Easterling and Clyde. <laughs> Easterling is the only tobacco-free institution out of 33 institutions in the state. It was what was known as an observation camp. Nobody, you don't even speak, you know, power, life, and death is in the tongue. Even unsaved people don't say the name Easterling. <laughs> you just don't want to raise your chances of going there. Well, I get on the van, and we're leaving, and we go to Ventress, and a couple guys get off, and I thought, well, I'm going to Bullock, you know. We get to Bullock, and a couple guys get off. And they shut the van door, and, uh, and I knew I was going to Eastland. Now, I look back now, and at the time I got saved, and I could see God's hand 
put me in that place. Because when I got there, it was the first time I'd ever got sober in 16 years of my life. I, I was 28 when I arrived, when I got out in the back gate at Easterling Correctional Facility in Cloud, And I hadn't been sober in 16 years. I was 171 pounds. I was a needle junkie. I was putting about a half an eight ball of meth in my arm every day in prison, just wasting away, wasting away. And I remember I got there and they put me in a restriction dorm for a month. I'd been on restriction for two years anyway from all the disciplinaries. I hadn't had visitation or phone call. I'd used my cell phone, but I hadn't had privileges in two years. I hadn't seen my mother in two years. I remember I did a month in that restriction dorm and then uh, they let me out. And I, the only reason I didn't get high at Eastland was because the drugs that they had there were not my type of drugs. They had a lot of Suboxone and Methadone. And I just had never been an opioid fan, you know, always been a speed fan. And so I just didn't get high. By God's grace, I just didn't get high. I started working out again, started playing sports again. And it was late October of 2012, six months after I had been there, I got invited to the chapel. And I wish Pastor Vic was in here, but it's okay. He'll watch me. Is he? I got invited to the chapel at Easterling. By, uh, by, by a guy named Jeremy Boone. Jeremiah Boone. He's from Valley. He said, come on, go to the chapel with me, man. So I went to the chapel. You know, and wasn't raised in church. Had no reference point for Jesus. Only thing I knew about church was Easter and Christmas. There was never no power behind that name in my life. It was for the people who went to church because it was Easter and Christmas. And I watched my parents dress me up every Easter, quit their cussing and quit all their hollering and dress me up. We'd go into church and put on a good face. And I thought, this is the most, this is, there's no life in this. There's no power in this. This is, this is, this is just a show. Because I know all these people and y'all hang out with my parents and y'all crazy too. <laughs> you know? I didn't have no reference point for church, but the good thing was my heart was a blank canvas as far as, the, as far as Jesus went. The Holy Spirit could just do what he wanted to on it. I would read the Bible and I'd take it for what it said. You know, and a man or a woman who reads the Bible and takes it literal is a dangerous person. They got faith through the roof. So I was there and I told Jeremy, I told uh, Jeremy Boone, I said, thank you for inviting me. He said, well, you coming back tomorrow? I said, probably not, but you know, you just go because your buddy invited you. Well, what did happen is I went home. I don't have it now, but it was, a, it was a big, large print, New King James Bible. I still got it. I read out of it at my desk at home. This old preacher man gave it to me in the county jail, and I held on to it for four years. I held on to that one book, and all my doing lock-up days and all my transferring, I held on to that Bible. I don't know why I held on to it. I wasn't saved. But I held on to that Bible, and I, I held on to a book that my mama sent me, Battlefield of the Mind by Joyce Meyer. And when, so when I went back to my dorm, I just started reading the Bible. I started reading Joyce Meyer's book. And I remember I would, I would just open up like the first Peter and I would just, I would write the Bible word for word. Grace and peace unto you, dear brothers and our Lord. And I would just write. I had done everything you could do in the prison. I was bored. And the Lord came to me. Well, I read the Bible for two weeks and uh, I walked up into the chapel and they were playing a um, movie, Passion of Christ. You ever seen that movie? I sat down in the back right pew, and uh, just in case I wanted to ease out, you know, nobody had to see me. You'll never sit in front if you're prone to leave early. <laughs> you know, I sat in the back, and I started watching that movie, and I, you know, I remember I'd been reading this for two weeks, and I'd been trying my best to do what this said, 
and I was angry and I was a gang member and I was a drug user and I hated everything and I hated you and I hated me and I hated my dad and my stepmom and everybody. And I was trying my best to do this, but my heart was pure before the Lord at that moment. I didn't know I was getting saved that day. So I was sitting back there and I was watching that movie and it gets to the point, you know, where they're whooping him. And I know it's just Hollywood, but they, get, they did a darn good job. And uh, I just started crying like I am now. I started crying. Nobody was ministering to me. The chapel wasn't full. And I said a prayer. I didn't know Romans Road to salvation. I know it now. But I said, God, if you're real <laughs> and, you can, and you can hear me, if you're not real and you can't hear me, okay. But I'm just going to try this. I said, if you're real and you can hear me, I'm asking you to help me. I, I don't know what that looks like to you. I don't know if I'm saying the right things, but I feel like if you're real, then you'll know what I mean. And you'll help me because I don't have nothing left. And I just want, I said, if you'll give me peace and, and, and some hope, I'll follow you. I'll follow you, God, or whatever that is. And see, I knew what it was like to be a man of covenant. I'm a, I was a gang member, remember? I know what it's like to give your life as an oath for something. And you can't just not give your life that day if you don't feel like it. You know, I don't feel like picking up a knife and fighting anybody today. It's like, it's not how it goes. You gave your life. You stood on, in between the, all these people and, and you said, I vow to protect this gang or whatever. So I told the Lord, I'll speak in covenant, talk with the Lord that moment. I knew. I said, if you change my life, I'll follow you. I'll follow you forever. I just need something. And I said, I give you one month, God. I give him one month. I went to the Lord and put him on a timer. That's all right, Lord, you got 30 days. I said, if you don't change my life, though, I just, I'm, that's it. I'm going to smoke weed and, and do drugs. I'm going to be in prison forever. I'm trying you here. You know? And it took him about two weeks. I said, that's it. I, 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 I went to Elliot and the brothers at the chapel. And, uh, and I yielded and submitted my life unto those men. They baptized me. They baptized me twice. <laughs> Charles McCory, he's not there anymore. I talked to him last week, but he, when I came up out of the water, he said, now say roll tide. And I said, where are you going to dump me again? <laughs> I got baptized twice. But I yielded to those men. I didn't know what was happening. All I knew is something had broke inside of me and the Lord put the spirit of humility on me and I could yield to those men. I, I saw that they walked in something that was otherworldly. There wasn't no hocus pocus about it. There wasn't no falseness about it. It was pure, genuine, holy anointing that was on those men. Elliot operated from another realm. He was a man of few words. He didn't speak a lot, but when he did speak, it's like you just had to listen to him. His, his voice cracks and breaks a lot. He'll go days without being able to talk. So he's learned to whatever he says, say it wisely. And don't just be a man of many words. And so I gave my life to God in Easterling in 2012. And uh, the Lord started doing some supernatural stuff in my life. And they let me go in front of Congress and speak at Alabama legislation. They got one inmate out of the state in the internal investigations. The same men that used to build cases on me came and got me and said, we want you to speak on how drugs has ravished your life. And so they came and got me and took me down to the Capitol building in shackles. And I spoke in front of legislation. It's on YouTube and all that. But I watched God's hand in my life, almost like Hansel and Gretel. He began to put those crumbs, and I was just following. You know, in the beginning days, he'll give you faith. He'll give you the faith. 
through dreams and visions and confirming words. He'll make you feel all good in worship. Then you grow up a little bit and the Lord steps back and he says, OK, I'm going to say who's going to come to me. You know, my son and my daughter's three and five years old. I'm going to handle them to the level of their maturity. But when they're getting, they get 30 years old, I'm not going to deal with them the same way that I do now. And in those early days, the Lord would just put so much little faith nuggets out there for me. Right. Like I might be reading in Galatians and you come in and preach in Galatians and I just be like, oh, God, the Lord is in this house, you know, and he's confirming his word. But I learned how to pray under those men at Easterling. I quit calling home and asked my mama for money. When God gets a hold of your life, your whole your whole life will change. He'll impact your flesh. He'll make you look different. I wish they had a mug shot. My last mug shot up there. He'll he'll impact your flesh. Jacob walked away from him with a limp. I walked away. That's not me anymore. He impacted my flesh. I don't look the same anymore. I learned how to be humble. I would, I would read the Bible and then I would go and, and certain things in the prison would happen and I would have to choose humility over pride. And when I would choose humility, the Lord would bless me. Because he would see internally in my heart that I was trying to please him. And so he would bless me. You want God to bless you, just become obedient. There's great reward in obedience. And it's not before the world to see. Most of, my, most of my breakthroughs come in the secret place where only God and me sees. But I can feel it because it's like that sweet spot on a bat. I know when I'm in his grace. And so I learned how to pray. They taught me how to pray. Elliot taught me how to pray. I would listen to him pray and I'd be like, my God, I can't, I can't pray like that. I don't have enough word in me. And I would pray a little prayer. and He'd say, come on, brother, keep going. And then they would lay hands on me and, and, and they, would, they would be transferring, imparting. Like Paul said, I've longed to come to you so I may impart some spiritual gift unto you. They would pray for me to receive my tongues and, and I would receive them and then I would pull back and they would come into me in the dorm. They'd say, we heard you during worship, bro. It's authentic. That's all you need to hear. Your prayer language is authentic. Just keep going. And I would get a dream and I would run to them and I would ask them, what does this mean? And then we would go to the James Strong Concordance and we would line it up with Scripture and then God would speak to me through my dreams. My wife is a dreamer. God speaks to her through dreams. And I learned everything I have at Eastland. But the main thing I always tell people is when he came, I, I, I just yielded. Yes. Drop your nets, follow me. And I am completely obedient to the Lord. I love Jesus. Him who is forgiven much, loves much. Like I love him. Like he's all I long to see. Behold the lamb who takes away the sins of the world. Just give me Jesus. It's all I want. I've had everything the world can offer. I want my kids to grow up beholding the Lamb. Well, they taught me how to pray. They taught me how to read the Word. And then in December, November of 2013, they transferred me. They sent me up to Limestone County, Decatur Work Release. And uh, I got released a month after that. They gave me my good time back. For, I had 19 months of good behavior. I had gotten in trouble for 19 months. Got around the potter's house and got straightened up. They didn't know. They gave me my good time back. I got out in December 2013. I called my mom and I said, Mama, do you hear that operator? Because you got to press one or five to accept. She said, yes, son, I hear it. I said, that's the last time you'll ever hear that. Come get me. And she said, what are you talking about? I said, they just released me. I don't know. They called me up to the office and said, you're getting out of here. You're no longer property of the state. And they released me. And I've been home for nine years. Uh... But those brothers at that prison and those ministers that would come in there, I would hang on to every word. 
I don't know who goes into the prison other than Pastor Coker, but it don't, sir, you might not have thought your message was doing anything, but I would take notes like a child. You could have came in there and just babbled, and it would have fed me. And God's got those men in there. They just transferred Elliot last uh, Friday to Bibb County, and all the brothers that were in there when I was in there, they've all been transferred and scattered out, but they're, they're duplicating the ministry. Like when persecution hit the book of Acts, the church, you know, persecution came and the apostles were scattered. And the, all they did, the enemy, what he wants for evil, God will use it for good. And so I'm still in contact with all those men. I got out in 2013 and um, went into ministry. We got reconciled in 2015. Um, we've owned two businesses and I've never had to apply for a job. <laughs> Praise the Lord. <laughs> the favor ain't fair. We have two kids, like I said, they're back there. We do international ministry. I do a lot of street ministry, pr prison ministry, jail ministry. But uh, my life verse, there's two life verses. I'm going to share this with you. Because I know what it's like to stand in these verses. You know, the, the word is alive. It's active. It's like an open portal. You can take Philippians 4 and do not be anxious for anything, but in all things in prayer and supplication. You can take that one verse and stand in it, and it will get you through your day. There's a portal in that scripture. The word's alive, it's active, it's sharper. Galatians 2, this 2 verse 20. So I know what this is. I know what it was to, to say, I'm going to follow you, Lord. I'm going to lay down everything. I'm going to pull these pants up. I ain't going to sag no more. I'm going to shave my face. I'm going to tuck my shirt in. I'm going to, be, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to humble myself. I'm going to be like the ones in Acts when, when, when they came walking down the road and, and they said, we perceive that these men have been with Jesus. I want to be that, Lord. I knew what it was like to be crucified with him, to put my old man and my old reputation and my old hate and my old drugs and all my alcohol and all the pornography and just put that stuff on the cross and say, you know what? I don't know a lot, but I'm just going to follow you. Galatians 2.20 says, I've been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved himself and gave him, loved me and gave himself for me. He's it. And for you men in here, I speak directly to you. It's okay. Look, I'm, I'm 6'4", 200 pounds. I've been to the end of the ringer and back, and you can cry for Jesus. You let him get a hold of your heart, man, and he is the only affection. I love my wife, and I only love her good because I love him more. I'm only faithful to her because I'm faithful to him. I don't reach for the bottle no more because I reach for him. Because of his strength, my weakness, his strength is made perfect. And I see men all around the earth today. I, I go to them and the only thing they're missing is that beholding the face of Jesus. We let it go and follow him. And then Romans eight nineteen for the earnest expectation of creation eagerly awaits for the revealing of the sons of God. All of creation from that pine tree out there to to this whole sanctuary, to the White House, to Russia, to the sharks in the ocean. The whole creation is waiting with an outstretched neck. They're longing to see the manifestation of the sons of God. Not the greatest realtor, not the greatest landscaper, not the greatest technician, not the greatest engineer. All those things are good, but the creation itself is looking at me and you and waiting on the manifestation of us bringing his glory into the earth. That's it. Some of us are going to die for it. 
Some of us are going to be persecuted for it. That's fine. We can withstand all that stuff if we're intimate with him. The whole earth looks. Joe Biden, Donald Trump, President Ching and China, they're all looking inside the deepest part of them. They're looking for somebody to stand up and say, let me tell you about God. The earnest expectation. We have, uh, we have some stuff out there on a the table somewhere you can get in some, some information for what we do as far I lead a local outreach back home now. Uh, we mobilize churches. Our goal is to go in and unify the churches in our area to go out and spread the gospel, to revitalize our cities. Like I said, we'll be in Uganda for the whole month of November. We're taking our two small kids, and uh, we'll do... We'll do missions work. We'll pass out food and clothes and shoes to kids who have none. We'll preach to ministers and strengthen the pastors in that region. But I'm thankful. And it don't stop here. I'll get in my car and drive an hour away home and, and I'll be like, Lord, the same. it's the same prayer, Lord. It's me again. I just want to be closer to you. I just want to know you more, Lord. That's the only, you know, if my tombstone should say he just wanted to know Jesus more. I know, Pastor, you mentioned maybe some keys on cue. She's excellence in ministry. And we want to tell you all, too, we've traveled a lot of places, and there was such a spirit of excellence on our experience here today. So thank you all. Thank you for, for whatever it is and your part in this. Elliot used to always say this. He'd say, I'd say, what are you going to do today? He'd say, brother, I'm just going to do my part. So just do your part in the kingdom. This can sometimes become the smallest part. We give more honor to the weaker vessels. So from the parking lot to the pulpit, to children's church, to whoever's pouring the cup, to whoever's vacuuming these floors, do it in excellence unto the Lord because He walks this place with you no matter where you are. So thank you for the spirit of excellence. I know we're going to bring the kids in in, in, in a little while, but I want to pray. The Lord showed me. I want to pray. You don't have to come up here. You can. I went running. Elliot said, who in here is dealing with pride? I would just stand up and say, I'm prideful. I'd say, I don't want to be prideful. And I'd run up to the altar. I found out that this place is where you got free, and I would go. I've watched men in that prison hold on to the altar. They're, they're serving life. They're repenting of murders and robberies, and they're just holding on. Now, I don't know where you are, but I want to pray. I want to pray specifically towards the men. Ladies, I love you, but... There's divine order in God. I want to pray for the men. I know some of you are tired. If you're tired from working, if it's just a cycle every day, you get up, you go to work, you come home, you cut the grass, you drink a few beers. I don't know what you do, but I know what I used to do. I want to pray that you be refreshed. Anybody who's got a family member that's an addict, anybody who might be an addict, you can catch me in the parking lot. You can run and meet me at the stop sign. I'll pray for you. There's an impartation that takes place when God sees that we, we want Him no matter what, the, what it looks like. There was, there was ten lepers. One turned around and thanked Him. Your moment <laughs> might be now. I don't know. It might be tomorrow. But I want to pray for anybody that's dealing with anything as far as life-controlling issues. 
We were made to go through the challenging times. They weren't designed. We're not made for them to kill us. If you need your strength, your faith strengthened, I'm going to pray for that. Let's stand up and just worship the Lord. We worship you, Jesus. This is it, Lord. This is your glory, Lord. If you need prayer, just come to the altar. If not, you stay there. That's, I don't, I don't, I don't, there's no protocol, but I would encourage you to come to the altar. That's all I'm going to say. Lord, we just bless your name, God. This is it for you, Jesus. There is no other name under heaven than which man shall be saved. And Isaiah said that to the end of your government and peace, there shall be no end. Lord, you shall be glorified. You said in the Bible, God, you have glorified your name and you will glorify it again. I pray for the same grace that's on my life, God, that it be on these men's life in here, that it be on these women's life, that they leave this place refreshed and a hunger for you, God. I'm going to take time to pray and I'll pass it over to Pastor Randy.